ethical and moral obligation to have a safe home for these species that we share the planet with. We also rely on them. We rely on biodiversity for the food that we eat, for the water that we drink, for the air, for everything. If it weren't for life, we would not be here. They're intertwined. We know that about a third of the solution to the climate crisis comes from nature, and we know that the climate is having a big impact on nature. So we have to solve these twin crises together. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Christian Saint-Pierre. Christian is a managing director of the Bezos Earth Fund. He previously served for 10 years as president and CEO of the Wildlife Conservation Society. Earlier in his career, he served as director of the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of Natural History from 2003 to 2012. His service to the Smithsonian also included assuming the role of acting secretary of the Smithsonian from March 2007 through June 2008. He was a founding director of the Humboldt Institute in Columbia. He completed both his MS and PhD in biology at Harvard University and is known for his work in the ecology of the Andean cloud forest, conservation biology, and environmental policy. Christian, welcome to the podcast. I've appreciated the opportunity to share ideas and work closely with you on biodiversity and conservation, particularly in Colombia. So I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. So let's start with your upbringing. You were raised in Bogota, Colombia. Tell our audience about your childhood, your early education in Colombia, and how you became connected with wildlife and with nature. Thanks, Hank, and it's great to have a chance to join you uh, for this podcast. As you mentioned, I grew up in Bogota, Colombia, the son of an American mother and a Colombian father. Bogota is a large city of about 8 million people. But when I was a kid, as a Boy Scout, and I spent some time hiking and camping in the areas around Bogota, and I found as a teenager, most of my time was spent in the mountains behind the city, in particular in a national park called Chingasa National Park, which uh, provides most of the water uh, for the city. And it's a remarkable place, a home to a place called the Andean Paramo. My mother tells me, or used to tell me that as a kid, I would be one of those kids that would just go and collect all kinds of bugs and plants and things and bring them back into the kitchen and then start sorting them out. So I think it was that curiosity. And every kid does that. It's just some of us never grow up. And I think we continue asking questions and collecting things. So that was sort of my early childhood in the mountains. And then uh, when I was thinking, finishing high school, what I should do, I figured, well, biology sounds like a pretty good opportunity, an area to go into. At which point I remember several of my relatives said, well, poor kid, you're going to starve. Why would you ever want to do that? Just become an economist or something else. But unfortunately, I had two parents that were very supportive of my pursuing my passions. And that's where the whole journey started in the mountains outside Bogota, Colombia. And then you know, as you made the decision to pursue a career in conservation, you had some very interesting internships in high school and you you visited spots outside of uh, Columbia. Absolutely. I mean, that was part of what was great about my parents. They supported me. And I've always told teenage kids, when you're interested in something, go and try it out. 
So early on, when I liked animals, I thought I might want to be a veterinary doctor. And uh, my parents said, well, fine, but just go and spend the summer with your family, our family vet. Um, about 10 days into it, I figured that was not what I wanted. I wanted to be out in nature, not be locked up uh, looking at dogs and cats. So my next adventure was actually to go to Canada and spend a summer in a tiny island off Prince Rupert in British Columbia, banding rhinoceros auklets and studying the feeding habits of this as a volunteer for the Canadian Wildlife Service. The following one took me to Kirstenbosch in South Africa. So I was very fortunate as a young kid, I, I was exposed to all these areas and then I was hooked, there was no going back. And what terrific areas to, uh, to visit. So, you then went to Harvard, got a PhD, and you went back to Columbia in 1992 and helped set up the Humboldt Institute and the Ministry of the Environment. So explain why Columbia is so important for the global effort to save biodiversity. And what did your work for the Colombian government entail? Why did you go back there? Well, I, I always wanted to go back to Colombia. But when I, and it's just, Sometimes things happen for a reason in life and coincidence. As you mentioned, I finished my PhD in 1992, which was also the year of the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro, when the world was really waking up to this and all the big UN agreements were adopted. So I went back to Colombia. Colombia had a delegation that went to Rio and they signed all these agreements and they came back and said, so now what do we do? At that point, Colombia, like many governments in Latin America, did not have a Ministry of the Environment. Environment was basically a small division within the Ministry of Agriculture. So one of the things I found myself as a newly minted PhD that went back there and uh, to work in an NGO, and I was uh, very fortunate to have had an opportunity to learn and to contribute to the drafting and the creation of the National Environmental System of Colombia. The question was, how do we need to manage this? And we said, we need to create a National Environmental System. We need to create a ministry of the environment that's on equal footing with the others. We need science to support the work of the ministry. And one of the ideas that we said, we need to create a national biodiversity institute, which we decided to name after Alexander von Humboldt. So it was just one of those things that was a coincidence. If I had arrived in Colombia three years earlier, it would have been too early. The world wouldn't be there. The Colombian government would be there. And if I'd come back five years later, someone else would have done it. So I was just very fortunate to be there. And of course, Colombia is a remarkable country, as you probably know, um, because of the amazing biodiversity. It's biogeographically placed in the connection between North America and South America. It's got two oceans. It's got an incredible diversity from the Andes to the Amazon, to the Llanos, Venezuela, and the areas like that. So it really is an incredible diversity ecosystem. So a great place to be. And for those of us that like birds, like you and I, uh, no better place in the world than Colombia. It's just amazing. You know, my wife, Wendy, and I have traveled all over Latin America and there's no spot like Colombia. You know, the cloud forests, the tropical forests in the Amazon, it's, it's just a spectacular, spectacular place and very, very rich in biodiversity, very rich. So now after a leadership role in the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama, you were selected at the age of 36 to lead the Smithsonian's Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. That's a place I enjoyed spending time at while I was in Washington. So tell our listeners about the Museum of Natural History, including its sometimes underappreciated role in conservation. It's a museum that has a, a significant impact in conservation. And talk a bit about the, the museum and what you accomplished during your almost 10 years leading that museum. It was a remarkable opportunity. 
turns out I was first hired to be in Panama, which uh, running a the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute, which is a remarkable organization. And then I was approached about running this museum, which was highly unusual. I, I mean, I was the youngest director and the first non-US person to actually lead the National Museum of Natural History. And most people, when they think of the Smithsonian, they think of the museums. And it's a remarkable set of museums, the National Mall in Washington, DC. But what most people don't realize, Smithsonian has 19 different museums. It's got a nine different research institutes. And it's got a massive collection. So the Museum of Natural History has by far the largest collection of any museum in any field in the world. It's got over 140 million specimens that have been collected over the last 200 years from every corner of the world in geology, in biology, in anthropology. So, and, and that collection, the real importance is to use it for scientific research and to inform key decisions. Only a tiny portion of those objects are presented to the 7 million visitors that walk in through the doors every year. So a lot of the work that we did there, starting with the public side, was we completely renovated all of the exhibits. We did an ocean hall, we did a mammal hall, we did a, a whole set of exhibits that were sort of the next generation of exhibitions. We took the collections and preserved them and digitized them, very importantly, looking at this. But we really focused on hiring the next generation of the scientists, which was really critical, so we could use the collections to probe them to ask really great information around things like conservation. So when you start looking, for example, at the bird collection of the Smithsonian, you can actually see what the distribution of species has been over the last 200 years. Nowadays, with the genomic tools that we have, we can do all kinds of probing questions around it. And, that, and then we have the field stations like the ones in Panama and others. So it's a remarkable laboratory to pursue questions that are relevant to the past, the present, and the future of this planet we call home. So this October, you stepped down from your role as president and CEO of the Wildlife Conservation Society, which includes the Bronx Zoo in New York and field museums around the world. Briefly describe WCS for our listeners and what you're most proud of from your time leading that organization. Well, thanks, Hank. So uh, as you mentioned, I was at the Smithsonian for 10 years. And like many tropical biologists, one of the things I realized is that many of the places that we have studied have disappeared. And one of the key points for me was seeing, well, studying something and publishing research papers on it is not enough. We really have to do something in the field. And I'd been privileged enough to serve on the boards of both the Nature Conservancy and the World Wildlife Fund. And that was an opportunity where I said, wow, these organizations are really doing something in the field, using science to inform conservation work. And one of those was the Wildlife Conservation Society, uh, which is based here in New York. And I was approached uh, to run it. So I did that for 10 years, as you mentioned, I just stepped down. And WCS is remarkable because it, it was set up in 1895 and one of the unusual things about WCS is we have four zoos and aquarium in New York, which holds more than 5 million visitors a year, which are critical because these zoos represent windows into the world for so many people that grow up in cities these days and never get to go out to nature. But what most people don't realize, WCS has more than 4,000 staff that work in 60 countries. So we've helped set up more than 350 national parks around the world. We've uh, set up very strong programs around combating illegal wildlife trade, things like elephant ivory and many other areas. And of course, uh, part of what we had to deal with here in New York was uh, reconstructing after Hurricane Sandy, the New York Aquarium, which was pretty much destroyed with Hurricane Sandy. And we spent 10 years rebuilding it. And nowadays we have a world-class aquarium that focuses on the seascape right around New York. So I think it's a, been an amazing journey uh, over 10 years. But my father's advice was always know when to leave on a high note. 
and move on to a great opportunity. And that's why I decided to move on and join the Business Earth Fund. I lived in New York for 12 years and, you know, I obviously visited the zoo. That was something I enjoyed. But my experience with WCS was the work they did around the world. When I had helped initiate an effort to preserve uh, over 800,000 acres in Chile for the Caracanca and the, the Linga Redwood Forest down there, it was working with WCS because they had this really integrated science with conservation. And um, I worked with you most closely as you helped former the former president of Columbia, Ivan Duque, get some important things done. So talk a bit about the importance of some of the things that were done in, in Colombia and some of the, the, the challenges and opportunities ahead. Well, uh, one of the things I've tried to do, I've, I, I left Colombia 20 years ago and I've lived in mostly in the U.S. in these various roles, but I've always, I never forget where I come from and I always try and help the country. And Colombia is not only a remarkable country in terms of biodiversity, but uh, it also has very strong institutions, universities, and uh, people. And one of the things we've tried to do is continue to support building this capacity and conserving and protecting the nature of Colombia. So one of the key things I've focused on for the last 20 years is continuing to create protected areas, expanding some national parks so they cover altitudinal gradients that will make them more resilient to climate change. And we work very closely both with President Santos and with President Duque in really expanding the protected areas, both on land and sea in the country. And the remarkable thing, one of the international goals that's being discussed right now uh, at the global level is the goal to protect 30% of the planet by 2030. And I'm very happy to say that this year, uh, Colombia has actually, thanks to the work of the previous administrations, already protected 30%. And that's been the work of many institutions, many people, but it's something truly remarkable. Now, there's still plenty of challenges. As we know, deforestation in the Amazon is still a big challenge. This is tied to land speculation. It's tied to drug trade directly and coca production. So I think there's a real challenge ahead that we need to do this because so many of the environmental problems in Colombia are, uh, have their origins overseas. And I think we have to figure this out. And I'm continuing to help with the new administration and how we can work together to help protect the Amazon. I'm glad you're doing that because I had the great fortune to know President Uribe, Santos, Duque, work with them all on conservation projects. They all were great leaders. The current president, it's going to be interesting because he's made a big priority out of the environment, right? Hopefully, that uh, you're going to be able to continue to help him as he works through some of these policies. Well, there's a new team of players. I think one of the things we need to do is uh, work with all the administrations and really do this. As you say, the, the new administration with President Petro is very strong on the environmental issues. He's making very strong statements here. So the headlines are good, but the devil's in the details, as we always know. And uh, that's where we have to figure out how we can support them. Good finance minister and environmental minister. And so you've got some things to work with. So you are now leading a critically important nature solutions effort at the Bezos Earth Fund, which manages a $10 billion commitment from Jeff Bezos to fight climate change and protect nature. So tell us a little bit about how did you first get connected with Jeff Bezos? What is his vision for climate action and global biodiversity protection? And how does he think about the relationship between these uh, two goals? Well, so uh, the, the way I got connected is last year, 
when um, the CEO of the Bezos Oil Fund was selected, Andrew Steer, who had been, I knew him from when he was the president of the World Resources Institute. So when Andrew was looking at this position, he reached out to me and said, what do you think? And I started telling him, my first comment with him, to him was, don't forget, we can't solve the climate challenge without nature. And it's wonderful to see a $10 billion commitment from someone like Jeff Bezos, one of the largest philanthropic commitments ever made. And yet that's tiny given the size and the magnitude of the challenges that we have to do. And the question is, how do you deploy the philanthropy well? And my feeling when you look at the landscape of big philanthropies, including Mike Bloomberg and Bill Gates and others, is that the one area that's really not received enough attention is that intersection between nature and climate. And there are really tremendous opportunities there. And um, I started advising him. Uh, Andrew asked me whether I could serve as an advisor to help design the original strategy. Through that, I had a chance to meet with Jeff Bezos. And to my delight, I saw that Jeff was intellectually very curious about these issues. He's uh, still learning about both climate and nature, but he's really come to appreciate nature for the sake of nature. So part of what he's saying right now is it's not only about protecting and solving climate, but it is about protecting our planet and protecting nature for the sake of nature. And uh, one of the important announcements that was made September 2021 was an initial commitment to spend $1 billion towards support the 30 by 30 goal, protecting 30% of the planet. And that was followed shortly thereafter, the meeting in Glasgow, uh, with uh, two additional pledges on restoration and food systems. So we have a three-pronged strategy in the nature portfolio, which is protect what we have, restore what we've lost, and transform the way we produce and consume food to reduce the pressure on nature. And we've got a $3 billion commitment that's been publicly stated to be able to do this. I think it's a remarkable opportunity. And uh, we're working with our partners, other donors, and implementers to try and make a difference on the ground. So tell us a bit about your working relationship with Bezos and how much time you expect him to devote to this initiative. Well, I think uh, my experience has been that Jeff is available. We we have uh, monthly calls with him to talk about some of the ideas and the portfolios that we're looking at. Uh, we've actually taken two field trips with Jeff Bezos this year. We went to Chiribiquete National Park in the Amazon of Colombia, which is a remarkable place. And we spent a couple of days there. And then this summer, we went to Gabon in the Congo Basin, which is another area. So he's devoting the time to go to these places, to meet with the leaders, to really push the agenda. So I think he's it's been a very... Uh, uh, rewarding journey. Of course, he's a busy man, both being the executive chairman of Amazon and Blue Origin and all the other enterprises. But I think this is something he deeply cares about. And um, he's always available, always asks good questions. You always have to come prepared with the right arguments and uh, he'll probe deeply into them. But once he signs off to something like he did with the 30 by 30, uh, we're fully behind and implementing and deploying those funds to make a difference on the ground. So I'm going to divert for a minute because you mentioned Chiripiquete, and I'd like you to tell our audience a little bit about Chiripiquete because this was an example of a just a spectacular wilderness area that was actually not developed or protected largely because the FARC, right? were spent a lot of their time there. And so it was it, it just wasn't developed. And I had an opportunity as arranged by President Duque to, to fly in and visit this with the Latin American Conservation Council. It's just an amazing area. So tell, tell our listeners a little bit about the Chiripiquete. Chiripiquete is a remarkable place because uh, most people don't realize that about a third of Colombia is in the Amazon basin. When people think of the Amazon, they think about Brazil, but a third of the Amazon is in other countries. 
And what's unusual about Colombia, there is no infrastructure there. So these are really remote areas. There are no roads to access the Amazon. Geologically, it's fascinating because when you go, if you fly into this area, you're flying through the sea of green, and then suddenly you see these gigantic rock formations that are like islands floating over the jungle, which are part of what was called the Guyana Shield. They're very old rocks that are found from Guyana, Venezuela, and into Colombia. So it's an extraordinary place uh, with some of the oldest rock formations. And we know there, there's an amazing collection of pictographs and evidence of indigenous groups that have lived in this area. And we think there's still some uncontacted tribes in the region uh, here. Uh, what's remarkable is it's now the largest protected area in, in the Amazon, covering more than 4 million hectares. Uh, it's enormous. It's almost the size of Switzerland. Uh, and it's relatively intact. There's growing pressures in some of the edges with, tied to deforestation, but it is a remarkable example where a different administration be building on it and is one of the jewels in the crown of the National Park System of Colombia. And it is one of the key areas that we're investing in helping make sure that it is protected for future generations. But I think it's just fantastic that you took Jeff Bezos there because I've traveled all around the world in Latin America and it's one of the most spectacular places I've seen. A little inside story I'll tell you is that I'd already been offered the job before I went there. And I told Andrew, I said, I'm not going to accept until we go to Chiriquete. And I want to take a look and stand there with Jeff Bezos and see his, his eyes. And we went there and he stood on top of one of these tapuis and looked out in the distance for a little while. He just turned around to me and said, this is one of the most remarkable places I've ever seen. And this needs to be protected. And then uh, when I saw that and I saw his commitment, I reached out and I said, I accept your offer. And that's where we did the handshake. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing today. That's wonderful. So again, how much has Jeff allocated to uh, nature solutions? Well, the initial commitment that's been made, uh, that was announced in Glasgow exactly a year ago, is $3 billion that are going to be spent. $1 billion for conservation, $1 billion for restoration, and $1 billion for the transformation of food systems. Right. Uh, but as we've discussed with Jeff, I mean, there is more within those 10 billion or even beyond that. It is our challenge to identify the best opportunities and the areas to do the to do this. And one of the things that we've done is not just looking at the base of the fund, but working with other donors. So as you know, Hank, uh, one of the things we've done in the last year, which I'm most proud of is when we announced we were going to invest $1 billion in conservation, we reached out to some of the other philanthropies that were out there, groups like the Gordon Betty Moore Foundation, uh, the WIS Foundation and others, and we created a coalition, including the Bobolink uh, Foundation, by the way, uh, which you and Wendy have, and we created what's called the Protector and Planet Challenge Coalition. And this is uh, 11 philanthropies that together have pledged to invest $5 billion between now and 2030 to help protect 30% of the planet. And I think it just reminds us that uh, we all share a vision and we can work together, learn from each other. It's not a pooled fund. These are existing commitments. Every one of the donors in that pledge has increased their giving as a result of this. And we're putting it out there as a challenge to governments because what we need is the resources and the capacity so we can really deliver on this goal across the world. Obviously, Wendy and our family is very, very pleased to be part of that effort. But uh, the thing that you've emphasized, and I want to reemphasize it here, as important as the money is, even more important is how you're going to go about energizing and working with the conservation community. Because too often in the past, there's been competition as they compete for the same donors. And yet there's such a big job to be done that cooperation is, is really important. 
And one of the things that really stood out to me uh, about uh, WCS when you ran that was that they were a willing partners, right? They weren't trying to reinvent the wheel if they could cooperate with someone else. So I know it's early days, but tell us about your approach and, and your initial priorities. Well, so, so the one that's more developed is the conservation portfolio, because that's what I was advising initially. And what we did is we uh, be a strong proponent of keeping a clear focus. So don't try and do a thousand things, really focus on a few areas, have some very clear criteria that you can use. And what we did was in, in that particular portfolio, we identified three key criteria, identifying areas that are high in biodiversity, that are also important in terms of carbon stocks, and where we saw the political commitment from the leaders to really be able to implement the 30 by 30. And it turns out when you put those three filters around the world, a few geographies really pop. And some of them are not places where a lot of people have focused on or have and have been underinvested. So the two initial geographies that we focused on were the Congo Basin and the tropical Andes and the Western Amazon. Not all of the Amazon, but the Andes in particular, are incredibly important in terms of biodiversity, including Colombia, but Colombia, that would cover Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, and Bolivia. And we decided that in each of those geographies, we went out to all of the groups that are working on the ground that are really trying to do this. I said, we want to do one thing. We want to support these governments and working with the local communities, help expand the protected areas and strengthen their management toward 30 by 30. And we created coalitions, not only of donors, but of implementers. So in the case of Tropical Andes, we supported 11 different groups, NGOs that are working this, plus many more local partners and we're meeting together and we said, we will give you a grant to do your work if and only if you agree to be part of this broader coalition and collaborate with the others. And we come together and we evaluate progress together. So when we were in Gabon this summer, we had a meeting with our eight grantees in the Congo Basin to really review this. And we met with the you know, president of Gabon and the minister, Minister Lee White and others around this. So it is very much as you say, these are problems that are too big for any one group to solve. It requires civil society, local communities, NGOs, the private sector, the governments, and we all have to work together to be able to solve these challenges. We'll see. Jury's still out. We're only one year into this journey, but so far, so good. It sure is the right approach as far as I'm concerned. So, Christian, you and I care deeply about the biodiversity crisis. This crisis is in many ways even more alarming because it's more immediate than, the, than climate change. It's moving faster and less is known about the extinction of species and the destruction of natural capital. Can you put this in perspective for us, the magnitude of this challenge? Well, it's enormous, Hank. I think um, most people don't realize, I mean, as a species, as humans in our journey, and especially the last 200 years, our human footprint is enormous and we've transformed so many parts of the planet. We estimate that at, least at this point, only about 23% of the planet still remains relatively intact. That's of the land surface, probably even less in the case of the ocean. So we have transformed massive areas, and we have few areas that are still intact or wild. And one of the things we need to do is protect those areas, and we need to restore some of the areas that we have lost as well. And there was a very famous phrase that, phrase that Norman Myers coined many years ago, which I think really summarizes the big difference here is that extinction is forever. So in contrast to climate, where you can reduce the emissions, where you could capture carbon, where you can do other things, once we lose a species, we lose it forever. And the, in many cases, a history of millions of years of evolution, and we have to, and that, that are documented in places like the Smithsonian, 
And one of the hardest things for me was going and opening a drawer of saying ivory-billed woodpeckers or Carolina parakeets or some of these species and seeing that these species used to roam in the millions in the United States and they've gone extinct forever. And the challenge is that we estimate the, the latest IBIS report or one of the reports that came out last year estimates that there are about 1 million species in danger of extinction on the planet right now. And that's probably out of 10 million. So one out of every 10 species on the planet could go extinct this century. And that's something we just can't do, not only because they're important for us, but because I think we have an ethical and moral obligation to have a safe home for these species that we share the planet with. And as you mentioned, we also rely on them. We rely on biodiversity for the food that we eat, for the water that we drink, for the air, for everything. If it weren't for life, we would not be here. And they're intertwined. We know that about a third of the solution to the climate crisis comes from nature. And we know that the climate is having a big impact on nature. So we have to solve these twin crises together. No doubt about it. And the other thing is when we start looking at mother nature, a system as complex as our global ecosystem, and we throw it out of balance, I don't think we know nearly enough about what what the potential threat of doing those that is, right? We know much more, scientists know much more about climate change. It's a huge problem, but at least they understand it. And, and with biodiversity, uh, the biodiversity crisis, we don't even know what we, all the right questions to ask yet. Well, I think we're getting better and we have more information. We've tried to digitize it, but we haven't sort of pulled it together into some of these big areas. And I think, but they're big questions. Like one of the most, um, scary things I'm reading in the scientific literature right now is, is the whole issue around the Amazon basin and what we call the tipping points. Yeah. So the problem of the Amazon is not only deforestation, areas where the forest is being cut, but we see that as a result of climate change, the whole climate is changing and their entire parts, especially the Eastern Amazon, they're becoming more, much drier. We see more forest fires happening and the entire thing is changing. And there's a second word that we don't use as much, which is degradation. So what we're seeing is that many of these forests are, are changing, are changing inside. They're not being cut down, but they're changing. We're seeing the, the different fruiting periods of plants. We're looking at the water cycles being interrupted. We're seeing all this and starting to change the whole issue. And uh, people like Tom Lovejoy that you and I knew very well, we're strong advocates for this and saying, we need to protect the majority of the Amazon. Otherwise we could lose it all. And there is a tipping point somewhere in there and there's a growing movement right now to saying we probably need to protect about 80% of the Amazon if we really want to hold on to it and all the functions that it has, not only for the Amazon, for the planet. And there are other tipping points like that that we need to understand and we need to act on them fast. So moving right along with, with biodiversity, a major UN conference on biodiversity is happening later this year in Montreal, the COP15. What are the most important items on the agenda and what are the challenges that we face and that you face right now in Montreal? Well, it's as you say, it's it's a very important meeting because this meeting is supposed to be adopting what's called the Global Biodiversity Framework, which is the global agreement for the next decade of what we want to do as a society. And it's supposed to be adopting a new set of targets that are sort of the global goals of what we want to do. The Convention on Biodiversity, when it was signed up in 1992, has three main objectives the conservation of biodiversity, the sustainable use of biodiversity for things like agriculture and other areas, and the uh, fair and equitable, the use of genetic resources and the fair and equitable benefit distribution of those benefits. So I think part of the challenge that we have right now, it's a very broad convention, it's framework, 
And because of the pandemic, there hasn't been enough time to get the negotiations. So there, there's still many, many unresolved issues in terms of this global biodiversity framework and what it's gonna be done. We would personally like to see things like the 30 by 30 target be adopted as a global goal for the next decade. Uh, we're very pleased to see that 106 countries have already come out in support of this. And we're working hard to make sure that this is included as one of the elements. But we need agreements on areas like restoration the European Union has put out a, a goal of saying we need to restore 3 billion hectares of land and 3 billion hectares of coastal areas. So these are the kinds of global goals that we need. But I think one of the biggest hurdles that we have is finance. Because what we see, we can agree on all these goals, but to implement them requires funding, requires political commitment. And we're severely underinvesting in this. And of course, you with the Paulson Institute um, did one of the seminal studies of this, of showing what that finance gap is. And it's massive. And what we're seeing right now is that we're gonna substantially have to increase the finance available to, for countries to implement this framework. And of course, the political moment globally is very difficult with the war in Ukraine, the economics and all the other issues. So I think those are the biggest hurdles. How can we get increase the finance uh, to some of the numbers that you and your institute came over with, which I think are sort of show the way of how we need to mobilize massive resources to really able to tackle this challenge. And we're falling far behind. Lee, I, I think did a lot of good work with the study the Paulson Institute did with the Nature Conservancy and, and Cornell tracking the financial flows around biodiversity, taking a real practical look at all the financing mechanisms but the, but the other thing that came out of that work from my perspective is that there are some things that can be done that don't require a lot of money, may require no money, but take a lot of political will, right? Yeah. So uh, it, it's much less costly to protect something than to, to, to restore it, right? And, and uh, if governments uh, reformed ag subsidies, and here I'm talking about farming and forestry and fisheries, and did it so you still incentivize production, but without some of the perverse subsidies that uh, that actually harm the environment, it would make a big difference. You, you and I have talked a lot about infrastructure in the past, right? There's going to be trillions of dollars of infrastructure built, but being smart about where you build it, how you plan for it, uh, the type of infrastructure you build would make a huge difference. Having financial institutions disclose the impact of their investments in lending, you know, on uh, on nature would make a big difference. So there's just a lot that can be done and we need a lot of financing. We need financing mechanisms and we need policy. And, and I just am so glad that you're helping lead an effort in this area. Well, it's a team effort, Hank, and you're one of the people most committed to this, as I know. So uh, we'll work with you and all the others to try and move this agenda forward. Okay. Now, I want to move to to training because you've been a very strong advocate for education and the importance of training the next generation of leaders in conservation. And you and your wife, Adriana, have created a fellowship fund in Columbia. So how is it working? Talk a bit about that, because as I've traveled around, I think capacity building is one of the, the, the key things we need. And having people on the ground in these countries that are trained and have the skills they need is very important. So talk about this uh, fellowship fund in Columbia. 
Well, th this was a, a personal project that my wife and I did uh, when we got married uh, 20 years ago. We said, well, what, what's a gift that we'll keep on giving? And she's an environmental attorney. So we have a shared passion for the environment. And we said, well, we really don't want any gifts or anything. What we want to do is give a gift to the country and to others in future generations. So we invited everyone to, we create a fund uh, that's managed by one of the foundations, the Fundacion Alejandro Angel Escobar, that was designed specifically to provide funding for students, Colombian students, that were going to be studying biodiversity in the country, the conservation, the sustainable use uh, of this, and even the tools and policies around this. And what's been fun is uh, it's continued growing. We, we provide some funding, modest funding every year to this. Other people have joined us, made gifts to this. Well, as of this year, we've actually funded 150 students in Colombia. And these are people that are now, in some cases, working in the Ministry of Environment. They're professors in some of the universities. And now we're seeing the second generation. We're seeing the students of some of the people who are funded early on by the fund. And there's, I think it's one of the most important investments we can make. Train that next generation of people that are going to be responsible for this planet. Now, the one thing I've learned, even though that was initially very focused on the science and the research, is we really have to train the next generation of people and create environmental awareness across all disciplines. So the issue we're focusing on now, with you, we need the economists, we need the lawyers, we need the engineers, we need all the people being trained by these institutions to have awareness about sustainable development. Because in the end, this has to permeate every dimension of our society. What we're discussing here is nothing less than changing the way we live and changing the way that we steward this one planet that we call home. And it's going to require new leaders, new presidents, new, new CEOs of companies, and so many people and working together with a shared vision. And that's what we need to do. Now, I'm incredibly hopeful when I see our children, we have two teenage kids, and I see the people in college today. They have an awareness of the planet and our connection with it that my generation didn't and certainly not my parents. So I think the next generation will be much better stewards of the planet and we need to do everything we can to give them the tools, give them the knowledge and give them the institutions that they need to be able to do this. So yes, this is a big commitment throughout our career and I'm very proud. One of the proudest things I see is when I meet some of these students and they come back and say, wow, that one support you gave me when I was an undergraduate student and you gave me that, that changed my life forever. And I'm committed to this. I'm doing it. And that's why we say this is a gift that keeps on giving every year. Education is the best gift you can give. So let's close with your advice to young listeners. So what advice do you give students who are navigating their lives and careers in today's rapidly changing world? Well, I'd say, first of all, follow your passions. I mean, we uh, just understand what you really care about on the planet. That's what happened to me uh, when I was a young kid that was fascinated by nature. And my parents said, go and study biology, which was an unconventional choice in my family. Uh, but follow those passions. Make sure you're open to new ideas, uh, new risks. I think that's a key area. Don't be afraid to pursue areas and to meet other people in, in, in new ways. A lot of what we need is innovation here. We need new ways of thinking about the problems. We need new solutions around these areas. And then make sure that you, you, you pass this on to other people, share this uh, with others. Because I think one thing we've learned is these challenges are very complex and we need to really be able to work together and to share this with others so we can all really build a better and more sustainable future for us and for the planet. 
Thank you, Christian. We've covered a lot of ground today, and we are all very fortunate that after dedicating so much of your life to biodiversity conservation, you now have a very important new role and the resources to keep on making a difference. So keep up the great work. Thank you, Hank. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.